0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, send your Son, Jesus, into our lives to be our King, to rescue us from the dangers, the difficulties, the struggles, the forces of life that are against us. We ask in his name. Amen. the jerusalem crowd the city itself had been waiting for this day for centuries ever since they returned to the land they had never really been free of outside government first it was the pesky persians and then the greedy greeks and the rapacious romans And they were looking for a king who would rescue them from the oppression, the tyranny, the terror of Rome. You need to realize that we too need a king who will rescue us from the forces and foals, F-O-E-S, of our lives that are against us, that control us. So the first thing I want you to notice about this text is that Jesus is the kind of king that we need. Biblical scholars and students puzzled over that text from Zechariah 9, How could a king who would come humble and mounted on a donkey's coat, how could he eradicate the Romans, get them out and free the people from their callous cruelty? They were looking for a military messiah, someone riding into town on a war horse. They were looking for somebody who could defeat political powers in unjust situations. Jesus rides on a donkey, humble, lowly, as if to say to the people, Now look, If I came and got you out from under the boot of the Romans, that really wouldn't solve much, would it? Let's talk about your real enemies. The things that stand against you, the things that diminish you. Let's talk about your fear of death. Let's talk about your insecurities. Let's talk about your fear that your life is meaningless and insignificant. Let's talk about that. Now, John, the gospel writer, steers us in this direction by using the Zechariah 9 text, but inserting fear not, from Isaiah 40. If you read Zechariah, and we did, it says, rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Your king has come. And John puts those two verses together to create a very powerful and searching impact. Fear not. Daughters of Zion, shout aloud, daughters of Jerusalem. Your king has come. John recognizes that the things that are against us, the things that control us, are fear. We're afraid that our lives don't count, that they don't mean much, that they are insignificant. We are insecure because of our guilt and our shame and our sin. We are afraid that our lives have no point and no purpose. That we're just a tiny little speck on a planet of over 8 billion little specks. And John wants, to, wants us to know that the point of Jesus being our king is he's going to eradicate our fear. Not just fear of insecurity or fear of not being significant, but most especially the fear of death, which colors everything in our life which controls so much of how we live and how we believe and how we behave. John wants us to know that Jesus is a king who's going to attack those deep, heartfelt longings and fears in our lives. How's he going to do it? The second point in your sermon outline is that strength is weakness. Or better said, weakness is strength. Jesus is going to come, and he's going to die on a cross, humiliating, disgusting, But if you keep reading in John's 12th chapter, Jesus says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the time for God to reveal his power, his glory, his energy. And then Jesus says, just like a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, That's what I'm going to do, to produce much fruit. And then a little bit later in chapter 12, he gets very specific. He says, when you lift up the Son of Man, he will draw all people to himself. And just in case you missed it, And you can't hardly miss it. John adds a little editorial note. He was talking about how he was going to die being lifted up on a cross. Jesus' seeming weakness, the suffering, the crown of thorns, the scourging, the cruel nails of the cross. This is how God is going to defeat our greatest fears. This is how God is going to bring forgiveness and love and acceptance into our lives. This is how God is going to make our lives right and worthwhile. This is how God is going to give each one of us eternal significance. Jesus dying, blood-drenched, and sweat-soaked on a cross. Now, if that's true for Jesus, might it also be true for us? Several years ago, when I was in Iowa City, one of my habits was to go to the University of Iowa Library and, and read a book as sermon preparation, and I don't know how I happened upon it, but it's a book by David Aikman, and the title of the book was Hope, the Heart's Great Quest, and this is what David Aikman says in his book, He says the whole New Testament explodes with hope and it all centers on Jesus Christ and his cross. And then he says, the reason is because from our perspective, the cross is hopeless. Therefore, it is the source of all hope. Let me explain that quite simply. If God can accomplish his greatest work through the suffering and death of Jesus, when it all seems to have gone off track, when it all seems to be hopeless, you remember in Luke 24, the two Emmaus disciples, we had hoped He was going to redeem Israel. They had lost their hope because of the cross. But Aikman says, if God can do his best work at the cross, imagine what he can do in your life when you're hurting, when it's difficult, when you're suffering. God does his best work at the cross and he can do his best work in my life when I have no hope. When I've come to the end of my rope. I'm going to add a third part to the message that's not in your outline because you've been so attentive and you're such good-looking folk the question is often asked amongst christians pastors especially what does it mean for jesus to be my king when he has defeated all of my fears my insecurities my dread of death what does it mean right now for him to be my king well the answer that comes back from the majority of Christian folk is what it means to obey Him. He's your Lord, He's your King, so obedience. I want to take you to the explanation of the second article in Luther's Small Catechism and show you there's a huge, huge difference between the majority view and the scriptural view. It goes something like this. I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, my King. And now Luther is going to define what it means for Jesus to be my King. Who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned creature, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood, innocent suffering, and death. He's your king because he's defeated those forces and those foes that you can't handle. And then, and only then, after you know what Jesus has done, does he say, so that I may live under him, and serve him in his kingdom in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. You need to get the order straight. Jesus is your king because he's defeated those foes and those forces that are against you those fears, those anxieties, those insecurities, that feeling of guilt and shame. And once you realize he has defeated those as your king, then and only then in response do you live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot confront, and certainly we cannot conquer, the foes and the forces of this life that create fear and anxiety and insecurity. Give us feelings of guilt and shame. But Jesus has conquered them for us. Help us to live in that reality so that we might serve you by loving and caring about and serving others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.